You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. From the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, the museum brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. We would like to thank Blue Apron and ZipRecruiter for their continued support of SpyCast. You'll hear more about these great companies later, but first, let's meet our guests. For today's podcast, SpyCast has brought together a group of some of the most remarkable national security and intelligence journalists in the business. They're all on the cutting edge of today's modern media, reporting on what could be considered the hardest beat in journalism, the secretive world of intelligence and national security. They're trailblazers, award winners, trendsetters, true professionals, searching for the unknown story and environment in which this gets more difficult every day. And yeah, they just so happen to be women. In commemoration of Women's History Month, we welcome these six extraordinary journalists. To my left is Allie Watkins, the left on your radio dial, who can probably now be considered a frequent contributor to SpyCast. She covers soldiers and spies as a national security correspondent for BuzzFeed News. She worked previously for Huffington Post and McClatchy, where as a college student, she helped to break the story of CIA surveillance of the Senate over CIA torture and enhanced interrogation. You can hear my earlier conversations with Allie by checking out our podcast from this January and September 2015. Uh, I'm not going to go in order. Jenna McLaughlin covers surveillance and national security for The Intercept. She previously covered national security and foreign policy at Mother Jones Magazine as an editorial fellow. There, she recently published a deep dive investigation into the self-proclaimed freedom fighter Matthew Van Dyke in his mission to train the Assyrian Christians of Iraq to fight ISIS. Her coverage of Twitter and its relationship to privacy and counterterrorism has been referenced in congressional testimony. Ellen Nakashima covers cyber warfare operations and policy surveillance and national security issues for the Washington Post. In 2014, a reporting team she was part of won a Pulitzer Prize for public service for a series that exposed and examined aspects of the National Security Agency's surveillance programs. She's been at the Post since 1995. Along the way, she's also been a Southeast Asia correspondent stationed in Jakarta and covered regional educational issues the Clinton White House and Al Gore's 2000 presidential run. That must have been interesting. Molly O'Toole just finished a stint as senior reporter at Foreign Policy covering immigration, refugees, and national security. She apparently will now be roaming the earth like Kane and Kung Fu, searching for the perfect story. She was foreign policy's sole 2016 presidential campaign reporter, also an interesting beat, on the trail from New Hampshire to Nevada. Previously, she covered the politics of national security for Defense One, where she reported from Congress, the White House, the Pentagon, and the State Department. And before that, she was the editor, news editor at Huffington Post. 
Molly has also reported on national and international politics for Reuters, The Nation, Associated Press, and Newsweek International, among others, from Washington, New York, Mexico City, and London. Mary Louise Kelly is the national security correspondent for NPR News. Her reporting tracks the CIA and other spy agencies' terrorism wars and rising nuclear powers. As part of the national security team, she has traveled extensively to investigate foreign policy and military issues. Her assignments have taken her from the Khyber Pass to mosque in Hamburg and from grimy Belfast bars to the desert of Iraq. She first launched NPR's intelligence beat in 2004 after one particularly tough trip to Baghdad, so tough she wrote an essay about it for Newsweek, she decided to try trading the spy beat for spy fiction. Her debut espionage novel, Anonymous Sources, was published in 2013. It's a tale of journalists, spies, and Pakistan's nuclear security. Her second novel, The Bullet, followed in 2015. And last and certainly not least is Nancy Youssef, the senior national security correspondent for BuzzFeed News. She was previously with the Daily Beast and before that McClatchy Newspapers, where she served as national security correspondent and Middle East bureau chief based in Cairo, covering the Middle East and the Islamic world. Prior to that, she was McClatchy's chief Pentagon correspondent, focusing on the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. She traveled frequently to those two nations to see how the policies crafted in Washington reached Afghans, Iraqis, and the troops alike. She's also the founder of the Pentagon Press Association. Before covering the Pentagon, she spent four years covering the Iraq War, including a stink as Baghdad bureau chief. Her pieces focus on the everyday Iraqi experience, civilian casualties, and how the U.S. military strategy was reshaping Iraq's social and political dynamics. Welcome, all of you, and thank you for <laughs> taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. Take a breath. Yeah. Yeah. Good. This is your chance to talk. Again, I, I, I want this to be more you and not me. We're going to start uh, with a little bit of an origin story idea. We try to do this a lot with our practitioners who come on SpyCast. A lot of the listeners tend to be grad students, college students, early career professionals who maybe are thinking about doing something as a long-term career, dealing with the intelligence community. And maybe for some people, it's not working actually in the IC. It's covering the IC. So I'm sure you all have long bios and talk about how you got into the business. But in a brief, since there's so many of us, in a brief minute, minute and a half, can you tell us a little bit about what drew you to national security or intelligence reporting? So we'll start with Ali. Oh, man, I have to go first. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, so I got started in D.C. Um, my junior year of college, somewhere between my junior and senior year, and it just so happened that I started two weeks before the Snowden leaks, which was very fortuitous timing. Um, but I think just the – even before the Snowden leaks, I mean, that was just a chance, you know, opportunity. But I had always really wanted to go that direction. Um and I think for, for two reasons, really. The first was that I had a lot of the reporters that I admired coming through college and when I was choosing to go into journalism were national security reporters. Um, and it was one of the few beats where I, this is ties in a lot of this, a lot of the reporters I admired on the beat were women, which was one of, I, was one of the few beats where I, that was very present to me. Um, but I think the draw of it is that it's, First of all, I think it's one of the most challenging beats you can cover as a reporter. It's just there's a running assumption that people aren't going to talk, and that challenge can be so kind of intoxicating, I think. You're a masochist, um, is what you're saying. Basically, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and a sadist, really. <laughs> I enjoy repeatedly slamming my head into this figurative brick wall. Um, but there's also this massive payoff that can come with stories like this. And I think the general idea, everyone loves a spy story, if you can get it right. And uh, there's just this really awesome payoff and this gratification that the public is super interested mm -hmm. when you can get the story right. Nancy. Um, so I got into the business because um, I was graduating college right around the time of the Iraq War and the run up to it. And I was really struck by how 
Um, people were describing the Arab world and, and how the U.S. military was sort of interpreting events. And I just thought because as an Arab American and an Arabic speaker that I could bring a voice that others weren't, weren't necessarily able to bring. Um, you know, I could go through the streets of Baghdad and then go into a, a Humvee and, and, and be just as comfortable in both. And, you know, I often think of um, the war in Iraq, the front line being that Humvee. And, and one side of it is the people inside that Humvee, those soldiers who don't know if the people around them are trying to kill them or are friendly to them, and the, and, the, and the civilians outside who don't know if that Humvee is coming through to help them or to harm them. And so I think um, once I thought about the war that way, I wanted to navigate the, both sides of the front line, and, and, and that was the appeal to me. And, and frankly, in a way, still is the appeal because um, the, the, the wars have continued, and, and some of those fundamental challenges have been there all the way back to 2003. And so I, I feel um, I can bring a voice to that. Mary Louise Kelly from NPR. Hi, thanks <laughs> for having us. So I came to the National Security Beat. I had an epiphany sitting in the State Department one day because I really, really thought I wanted to cover the diplomatic beat. I knew I wanted to do international news and foreign affairs, and same period Nancy just described, in the run-up to the Iraq War, I had wangled a stint covering the State Department, covering diplomacy for NPR, and I was trying to figure out what the hell was going on, and we were sitting in a State Department briefing in the run-up to the Iraq War, and I had this moment where I'm looking at the briefer and thinking, he doesn't actually know what he's talking about. He, not that I did at that point either, but it, it dawned on me that the U.S. was not conducting its foreign policy through the State Department at that point, that they were doing it through covert channels, either through the military or through the intelligence agencies, and that that might be, if you wanted to see what the U.S. was up to around the world, a more interesting path. And NPR didn't have an intelligence correspondent at the time, but I came back to the newsroom and said, you know what, guys, like, this is what we need to do. And it's a moment that's come back to me recently, sitting at the State Department, where they no longer hold briefings, <laughs> that, um, that once again, the U.S. is not conducting its foreign policy through the State Department. So is anyone even shipped to work at the State Department anyway? <laughs> uh, it is uh, atrophied ranks, I think that's fair to say. Ellen. So I came to it sort of fortuitously in a way like Nancy and Mary Louise. I was a foreign correspondent in Southeast Asia in 2002, from 2002 to 2006. And in that period of time, uh, you know, we saw the uh, Bali bombings in 2002 and then the, the rise of militant Islam in Southeast Asia, which all corresponded uh, to, as well, you know, the 9-11 attacks and then the uh, uh, war in, in Iraq. And... While I was, you know, drawn to uh, to to that issue, terrorism, um, counterterrorism, I st I still recall sitting in a car uh, with it was a taxi on the island of Aceh in 2005, December 2005, the one year anniversary of the tsunami in Southeast Asia, and I was covering the aftermath of the the tsunami a year later, and I heard. Uh, a scratchy sort of radio interview on the Voice of America that was talking about a story that was breaking in the United States about warrantless wiretapping by the NSA of Americans. And I just remember sitting up, sitting in this taxi, being stunned. I'm thousands of miles away and thinking, what? what what's going on? And that story just struck me 
like a bombshell. I came back, um, you know, six months later in 2006, came back from my tour, and at that point was uh, assigned to a new beat covering sort of privacy and technology. But the aftermath of that, the whole debate about warrantless wiretapping and the, you know, the debate over privacy, national security, and technology is what I think drew me in to covering national security. And then from then on, you know, covered the Snowden leaks and, and other things. There's been a lot to deal with Absolutely. in the last 10 years. So I guess that's how I got into it. All right, great. Molly. I came at this from much more humble beginnings. I don't have a great anecdote about, you know, sitting in a State Department briefing <laughs> or in, in a car covering the tsunami. Um, maybe more like Ali, uh, when I was younger in grad school, I sort of stumbled upon women in combat, and it sort of blew my mind that technically women weren't allowed to be in combat, but they very much were on the front lines, or even, the front lines had been erased, uh, particularly in Afghanistan, uh, but Iraq also. Uh, and unfortunately, when you get into women in combat, you get into military sexual assault. That sort of led to other coverage of veterans' issues and sort of just really digging into uh, the price that some of these people had paid uh, to try and pursue the answer to this question of how you keep Americans safe after 9-11. But I think transitioning from that into sort of a broader coverage of national security uh, in Washington and, and elsewhere, it's sort of the same fundamental question to me, which in a way is sort of the ethics of national security and, and how that clashes with this whole idea Americans have about themselves or the story that we tell ourselves about the kind of values that we want to espouse and sort of export to the rest of the world or perhaps sort of force on the rest of the world. And I still think uh, a lot of those questions after 9-11 are unanswered. And the Bush administration, the Obama administration had different approaches to answering that question, but so many of those remain uh, open-ended. And I think that that continues to motivate uh, my work in journalism and um, until we find those answers, never, maybe. But uh, that's sort of national security uh, writ large is, mm -hmm. is what got me. And Jenna? So last but not least, hopefully. Uh, <laughs> my story is also a little bit more unusual, I think. Um, I actually went to school for creative writing and thought I was going to be a poet or a fiction writer, uh, Johns Hopkins. And instead of doing that, I ended up at Mother Jones with a fellowship. And I was interested in a lot of things. I kind of came to it from the perspective of loving to write more than necessarily knowing what I wanted to write about. Um, but at Mother Jones, I had the luck of being with David Korn, the beer chief there, and he'd written so much about Iraq. And at that time, we didn't really necessarily have anyone covering national security. Um, and I was really interested in the rise of ISIS as it was happening and really got to kind of take over that beat as a fellow there. And I was also really interested in the way that um, technology was sort of intermingling into that debate over what kind of wars we're going to be fighting in the future. And that sort of led me um, towards really digging into the arena of intelligence and cybersecurity, which I think are going to be some of the biggest issues in the coming <laughs> yeah, years, obviously. I, I mean, so. yeah, yeah. And I joined on at The Intercept, which is obviously this new media kind of experiment, um, picking up on the ideas of Glenn Greenwald's reporting with Laura Poitras on uh, the Snowden Archive as well. Um, so it's been quite an adventure learning about surveillance policy, technology, national security, cyber warfare, and um, it's just, it's caught on to me and took hold of me. <laughs> well, I'd like the rest of this conversation to be a whole lot of not me and a whole lot of all of you. Uh, so I wanna kind of throw out a basic topic, let you guys discuss it as much as you can. I will only jump in if I feel 
we need to move on to something else, or, or, or you have, you're done saying Boring, something. Yeah. But you can cut us off. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, what, I, what I really want to kind of focus on, I mean, there's been a lot of conversation lately about gender inequality in the United States, you know, whether it was the election with Hillary Clinton, uh, the book Lean In, you know, things like pay inequity, uh, like women in the military. So I want to I bring in that topic within your field, specifically not journalism, but specifically national security and intelligence journalism. And there are questions, again, I don't know anything about this, and I don't want to mansplain. I want to even come close to that. But my broader questions I think about are based on more of a uh, gender inequity overall. So my questions are, do you have to think you have to prove yourself more to gain respect from your peers or prove yourself more? It's hard to get respect from subjects of stories, policymakers, spooks themselves, the military. Um, did the militarization of intelligence complicate things? That has kind of more testosterone and more kind of uh, militaristic, or that it make it easier, maybe. So that those are the kind of questions, the concepts I want to see uh, if, if you guys have anything to say about. <laughs> They're all laughing because they have plenty to talk about. So. Well, I think the first rule we're taught as like women reporters is you never talk about being women reporters because yeah. then you're like playing the woman card. But well, I'm glad to be in a room. You're, with you're, yeah, you're fully yeah. allowed to play the woman card in here. But that is a, it's a, I'm, I'm of two minds about this because I, I mean, it's great to be in a room with so many women reporters who I respect, but you're also just reporters who I respect. It's not specific to your gender, but it, it is influenced by your gender. It's inspiring to me. And when you talk about women and reporting and the challenges they have in the national security field, I think there's this tension between this sort of tokenization of the woman reporter, uh, but at the same time, an appreciation of the perspective uh, that a woman can bring to national security. So I think it's sort of tough to have that right. When you talk about being women, the first rule of being a woman reporter is not to never talk, talk about, about being a woman being reporter. reporter. Yeah. I had the misfortune of starting in Washington three months after House of Cards first aired. Oh, oh my God. And I made the mistake of telling my mom to watch the series, and mm -hmm. I was ahead of her. And I remember making that call, like, oh my God, mom, please stop before episode seven. Like, do not <laughs> do this, please. Um, but I mean, it really set the tone of like, the, the tokenization of women reporters is yeah. a gross, basic thing that I think is just par for the course in I mean, DC. It's so, it's so unrealistic. If you tried to push somebody in front of the metro now, <laughs> yeah. it, it yeah. would be delayed anyway, and it would yeah. stop short. Could they actually film that in Baltimore? For <laughs> in Baltimore, you could probably get a yeah. away with it. Yeah. Could be single tracking that yeah. thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We will get back to the great roundtable in a moment, but first let me tell you a little about Blue Apron. Blue Apron's mission is to make incredible home cooking accessible to everyone. This is what has made them the number one fresh ingredient and recipe delivery service in the country. They achieve this by supporting a more sustainable food system, setting the highest standards for ingredients, and building a community of home chefs. Look, not all ingredients are created equal. Fresh, high-quality ingredients make a real difference. So it's important to know where your food comes from. Blue Apron has established partnerships with over 150 local farms, fisheries, and ranchers across the United States. As a result, their seafood is sourced sustainably under standards developed in partnership with the Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch. Their beef, chicken, and pork come from responsibly raised animals, and their produce is sourced from farms that practice regenerative farming. You can see this by taking a look at some of their featured upcoming meals, which include spinach and French mozzarella pizza with olives, bell peppers, and ricotta salada, sweet and sour salmon with bok choy, carrot, and ginger fried rice, parmesan crusted chicken with creamy fettuccine and roasted broccoli, and baby broccoli and fontina paninis with hard-boiled egg and arugula salad. Like, they sound incredibly complicated, 
but each meal comes with a step-by-step, easy-to-follow recipe card and pre-portioned ingredients and can be prepared in 40 minutes or less, even by someone like me. Maybe 45 minutes, but still, easy is a key word here, right? You even have pictures to show you what diced actually means. And look, Blue Apron's freshness is guaranteed. Promise that every ingredient in your delivery arrives ready to cook or they'll make it right. So today, check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com spycast. You'll love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron, so don't wait. That's blueapron.com spycast. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Let me add something else to this to make me feel a little bit better about using the women card. I did a podcast with Mary Legere, who at the time was a three-star general head of Army Intelligence. And one thing she really focused on was mentorship. And it wasn't just mentoring anybody. She did focus on bringing up women, low-level, second lieutenants, first lieutenants, captains who were in the intelligence world, and showing them that there is a path to being the head of Army Intelligence. Do you see that as your role? Were you mentor? Did you were you, were you grabbed by a woman? Where was a you, you talked about the fact, Allie, that you saw these people you admired who happened to be women journalists moving forward? So while I've definitely worked for male and female editors, um, I've gotten the lucky benefit of working for uh, female editors in chief the entire time. Uh, that Mother Jones, uh, Clara Jeffrey, is a force of nature to be reckoned with, and. Um, and Betsy Reed at The Intercept is, is a similar person. Um, I think one of my biggest mentors right now is my editor, Sharon Weinberger, who just came out with a book on DARPA. She regularly encourages me, and sends me stories, offers to send me to travel, and she is probably one of my best mentors so far, women national security. Yeah, I mean, I'll play devil's advocate, this is Mary Louise, and say I have never I just don't ever think about my gender, and I never really have as a reporter. It's never, I've never felt like it held me back. It occasionally gives little advantages uh, in that, I mean, just for radio, for example, everyone I interview tends to be male who's in the field, and it helps that my voice is female and you can distinguish us on air. It helps, um, you know, when generals at the Pentagon start going into acronym gobbledygook. And I can jump in and say, I'm sorry. I have absolutely no idea what you're talking about. Translate that into English because the people listening to this are going to need to know. And I didn't grow up throwing these terms around the way that maybe my brother did. Um, But I I mean, all of us sitting around this table are what, in our 20s, 30s, 40s. Um, We stand on the shoulder of giants. But I just felt like these are not battles I've ever had to fight or ever felt like I was taken less seriously as a woman on the national security beat. I don't know what other people's experiences have been. Well, well I'll, I mean, for me, I haven't quite had that experience. I mean, when I started on the Pentagon beat, there were just a handful of women there. So it wasn't that I thought about my gender other than to think I had to show that I could be tough on a military beat. So I'd lived in Iraq for four years on and off and done tours, combat tours. Until this day, I, I have more combat time than a lot of the people I'm covering. And that is leverage that I think I need in a way that some of my male colleagues don't. Um, and I, I don't want to sound like it's an advantage or a disadvantage or that I'm upset about it. I actually welcome it because it really made me a better reporter. So I think about it, I guess, in so much as um, um, I see it as something that's made me better and it's made me think in an unconventional way when you're out on the field because you think, okay, what can I do that other people can't that would make me 
unique. So I agree with you. I haven't seen yeah. it as a disadvantage or something that holds me back, but it's just um, a challenge that if 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 I look at it in the right way, makes me better. And and in, and in a way, it's also made me a better colleague because I see young reporters in the Pentagon, women, and I'm really eager to help them. I'm not competitive with them at all because I just feel a responsibility so aware of what it was like to come into that building and be just a handful of women. When you see more there, you kind of see it as a little bit of victory, but you're right, it's not the forefront of my mind. The forefront of my mind is the reader and advancing people's understandings. And so to me, any tool that gets me there, I'll take it. And it's interesting you mentioned being in the field. I mean, it's a huge advantage trying to cover the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan because we can talk to half the population that is not going to talk to our male colleagues if you're trying to get out and actually, you know, get beyond an embed and and speak to Mm -hmm. people. You know, it's hugely useful. Nancy, I don't know if you found this when you were trying to talk to some, you know, Muslims who are more conservative and won't if they are a man and they won't look at you or address you because you're a woman, then I've had that experience. But other than that, I think for the most part, I really haven't thought about my gender so much. Um, I've had to think about the fact that I'm an American um, and sometimes, you know, that I'm an Asian American. But um, no, and, and when I look at my colleagues on the national security staff at the Washington Post, I think maybe half our team is female mm-hmm. women and we have an editor who's a woman um, deputy national security editor so within that sphere I, I don't see it as a problem but I you know I do talk to uh, uh, women in the FBI and I know that's been an issue there at the bureau I mean women in senior level senior ranks are few and far between and I think they have an, uh, an issue there I'm going to play devil's advocate the other way if I can, mm-hmm. and hopefully I'm not like, you know, it's, it just isn't just, I know it's not unique to me, though. I mean, I've had a lot of conversations with women journalists on this topic and sort of how you can navigate this, and not so much as looking at gender as a disadvantage or constantly uh, looking at myself somehow uh, through some kind of mirror of only my gender, but... Um, I do think there's this sense that the national security beat and the intelligence beat in particular uh, in covering the Pentagon is still a boys club. Um, Women are certainly still in the minority and even with the sort of advent of digital publications that we like to think that with this internet age, you know, it's sort of democratized journalism and it's opened up all these doors and made journalism so much more of a diverse place. But the fact that I count as diversity, Molly O'Toole, at any publication is just a sorry I think that's a sorry statement on journalism. And the last, certainly the last two places I've been, I was the only woman on my team. They were small teams, but I was still the only woman. And um, even when thinking about, you know, I'm about to go abroad and do foreign correspondence for really the first time because mostly I've just chickened out. Um, but I am, I'm, I have questions in my mind that are specific to my gender, and I think that is a reality um, about security or what I'm capable of, and I'm resentful of that sometimes. But I can think of several instances, particularly covering the election, um, and trying to cover the election through a national security lens, which was remarkably dif- difficult, as you all can imagine. But um, there were things that were very specific to my gender, in particular about some of the conversations that were going on. But just the way, for example, that Vice President Pence kept talking about broad-shouldered leadership. I mean, there is a gendered mm-hmm. rhetoric, and I think in the sort of emphasis that we've seen from the Trump administration on sort of military means. Uh, to certain ends and even the priority shifts that we've seen in terms of funding for the State Department, uh, even in a way the sort of de-emphasis on sort of covert or the conflicts with the intelligence community and sort of this shock and awe 
um, that, that being the, the way that they want to go instead. I think that is, it is gendered, and I certainly saw that in the way people interacted with me during the election, and I'm going to give my favorite anecdote, which I may regret later. Um, but I once was uh, trying to ask Richard Burr a question, the chairman of the intelligence community, uh, committee, excuse me, not the chairman of the intelligence, far from that, um, the committee, and he sort of gave me one of those up-downs, as I'm sure you women are familiar with, and told me I should be wearing knee socks instead. I have a knee pro a sock problem. I never have the right socks on. Um, but sort of gave me an up-down and told me I should be wearing knee socks. And I was like, excuse me, Chairman, you know, if I could ask you this question about the CIA and the right. drone program, and uh, which is also ironic because Burr doesn't like socks. But um, I mean, those, <laughs> and that's one anecdote, but I, I don't think that's unique. I don't think that's unique to women's experience covering national security. And part of it may be, uh, this is Allie, um, that I, it, the political sphere, I think, when you mm -hmm. know when it touches Congress or when it touches the campaign, I don't know if that's you know I have a hard time separating them sometimes. Um, but I think for me, some of it may have been age related too, rather than gendered. But it was really interesting to me. Some of the first like big or consequential stories I worked on were with a, an older male reporter, mm -hmm. and it was so frustrating and enlightening at the same time to see how differently we were treated. Um, even when we were talking to the same people and just that he was kind of given this deferential respect that I had, granted what he had been around a while longer, um, but you know, there's a difference between like, I was the one showing up more, but he was the one getting the calls back. Right. And that was a really interesting lesson to me in um, just kind of the natural baseline that kind of operates around here. And I think there's also, like, I, having conversations with male colleagues, a male colleague has never been faced with a source saying, will you sleep with me for a story? And that is just an immediate, Have like, you? Yeah. Really? Yeah. yeah. You guys not? I've no. had a source. Not that direct. Pretty much yeah. profess their love to me before. Yeah, and yeah. it's, like, one of the weirdest, most strange experiences to have to then go back to them for information like yeah because you're as a woman you just kind of just as a reporter you just want to be like you're disgusted like gross go away kind of thing but at the same time you want to do your job you want to be able to like do it without you know favor or bias but you have to you know no, no male reporter I've ever met has had to deal with that kind of thing and I wonder I wonder if you went to an editor who happened to be a male editor and said, I can't cover this person anymore because they basically just sexually harassed me. Would you think that would be something that would hold you back? Would that be something that your uh, an editor would be like, well, you have to, or do you know what I'm saying? Like, with it, it definitely depends on, in my yeah. experience, it depends on the editor. I've I know you all have wonderful it. editors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes. um, but I, that's just a, I think it's a gross reality sometimes being a woman on this beat, and I'm sure other beats too. I'm sure it's not national security sources who are limited to being gross. But yeah, and it, it sorry, it's it's more than just covering a specific person. I mean, sometimes these people are sources that never show up in a story, but they're the person that are most plugged in that can tell you about things and hear about things, and you don't just stop talking to that person if that's where you're getting your best stories. Does that get worse as you're deployed? Like if you end up in, I know you've gone to Guantanamo to cover stuff there. I know a lot of you have been in very boy-centered areas. I mean, I, I was in the military in the 90s where I was at, in Bosnia on a fire base where we had 600 people and there were two women. And they were very popular and they were, they were fantastically good at that. I mean, they just, 
I admire them more than I, I probably a lot of other people because they just said, oh my God, this is a crazy ratio, but let me keep doing my job and not be in a situation where, you know, I'm being lusted over by 600 men who haven't, you hmm. know, general order number one for a good year while they're in Bosnia. Obviously, the ratios are better now to where, you know, it's a lot more equal. But when you're out covering Marines in Afghanistan or you're out covering people at Guantanamo or other places, I mean, do you feel that? I mean, is there is there questions about am I going to be safe? You brought up security going overseas. Are there questions about being harassed or being treated differently as a woman? So I have embedded with Marines in yeah. Afghanistan. Um, and I was, there were two women on the, uh, this was in Helmand province. Um, did I feel unsafe? I didn't. I mean, the thing I remember from that embed more than anything is we got on these eight hour, well, first of all, like I could tell they didn't know what to do with me at first. And then we got into a firefight, and I loved it. And they, they were so thrilled with that that it, I was in, except for um, we go on these add-on patrols, and we come back, and I was I needed to go to the bathroom like nobody's business. And they all were just walking along, no problem. Like, how do you do it? And they were all spotting each other in the middle of um, the, the patrol, and nobody told me. And I said, why didn't you tell me? And they said, well, you're a girl. I said, well, girls pee. What's wrong with you? Why would you leave me out? I mean, that was the biggest – that's, like, my memory of it. But – I remember that moment where they weren't sure if I would be able to keep up, but once I did, it becomes um, the unit. Like you're mm -hmm. all in the, you're in that Humvee together for weeks at a time, and um, and that's what stood out in my mind. Now I've been on um, in beds where you have to carry pepper spray when you're going to the bathroom in the middle of the night just in case. I mean, it's not that these things don't happen, but I almost feel like I've suppressed all that because. To me, if I let it consume me, I will not be able to do my job. Right. And that my only job is to get around every day is just a. So maybe I, it's happening and I just don't see it. But every time something happens, like my inclination is just to push it away and figure out a way around it. Because I'm only thinking about the reader. I'm not, I don't know how to say this. I feel like to in, in my mind, to indulge in how I'm being mistreated on a place that I volunteered to go to, either because you're watching the Iraqis suffer, the Afghans suffer, or because you're seeing kids on deployments for months and, and, right. and more than a month, more than a year at a time, I just never let myself go there, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. So it's not that it doesn't happen, but you've got a job to do. And, and I think um, that supersedes everything. Right. So let me broaden this out a little bit because I'm happy to have so many good journalists here because this is, this is a time that your profession is somewhat under fire. Uh, from those, I, I'll single out those on the right, you know, the whole fake news phenomenon. Uh, do you see it trickling down to the national security intelligence professionals you cover, or is it just nonsense political stuff out there for, for public consumption? Do you see that mentality of, from those people you're covering in the actual business, if that question makes any sense? Distrust of the of journalists. Yeah, do you do you see distrust from the rank and file, or is it just not you know bluster thrown out for for political consumption? I feel like I've honestly seen the opposite almost. I, I've certainly had sources come to me and say your work is more important than ever. Um, I hope that you continue to do this for many years to come. This is a dangerous time for us. Essentially, I, I've seen the opposite. Yeah, absolutely. I when I talk to People inside the intelligence community, they are mostly sort of, you know, shaking their heads and, and, and wondering, you know, how they'll continue to, to do their jobs. 
that's going on. So. I, I, yeah, this is Mary Louise. I would agree with that when I talk to people mm -hmm. inside the intelligence agencies. Mm -hmm. um, it's a strange mix of people on the one hand um, are it's harder to get people to return your calls. Like within the Trump administration, there is much public, you know, it's very clear that from the president down telegraphing mistrust of journalists. And, um, you know, it's three months ago, I could call the National Security Council and get pretty much anybody I wanted to return my call. Um, and they weren't necessarily handing me classified information every day, alas, but they would take my call and try to, you know, help me, help me answer the questions that I needed to answer. Um, and that door, shut from my experience at least on January 21st um, and it is difficult within the administration within the intelligence agencies on the other hand people who had never taken my call suddenly are taking it at their desk and you you kind of when they say hello you think really <laughs> really take my okay let's do this um, so it's been a very strange mix I will say from NPR listeners and readers tremendous support and you know what, what others have said you know thank you for the work you're doing it's so important right now and thank for asking tough questions and and holding people to account um but also a lot of pushback more pushback than i had gotten in past about use of anonymous sources so we did a big explainer on air right um yeah, literally was my next question talk asking about it because now more than ever on both sides i mean it's anonymous sources that are competing with other anonymous sources and and some people think that's the only way to get information out. Right. Um, and we've tried to be aggressively transparent about our use of them at NPR and other news organizations I see being more transparent. The Post has done a great job about this. I know one of the stories you were bylined on recently talked about having, we got nine sources um, on this. And, and um, you know, that has more weight than one. Um, but I see there's a lot of reporting out there, not from news organizations repped at this table, but where they've got, where, you know, the headline is shocking. And I read it and think, well, there goes my weekend. And then you get all the way through the story and you think, hang on, let me go back to the top. Who is the source again? And, and it's, it's one anonymous. They haven't even told you if it's a U.S. official right. or not. It's so thinly sourced. So I think we're all being pushed, rightly so, to, yeah. to explain how we're sourcing these I think stories. Post, like, to your guys' credit, yeah. has been, like, a case study. I think, I mean, we've all talked about, like, looking at, you guys have been so specific about, like, number of sources, mm -hmm. where they come from, and, like, qualifying. I had this talk with middle schoolers on Friday about how anytime you see an anonymous source in a news article, it needs to be qualified. And we use some of the, you know, examples of this, the posts and the times of how you guys always say, you know, this is why we gave them anonymity. So it's really, I see it as like the bar. And, and at the same time, we're under, you know, tremendous uh, pressure and we feel great anxiety because we know there are leak investigations going on. Right. And, you know, at, at the same time as we're trying to be transparent and specifying that we got nine, you know, current and former officials, I, I think that number was... Uh, was highlighted at a recent House Intelligence Committee hearing where the Republican members are you know, heavily pushing for leak investigations and essentially wanting to figure out who these nine people were. And we're asking questions of the uh, FBI director and the NSA director aimed at trying to figure out how you would unmask you know, their identities and who would be responsible for you know, getting this information to journalists. So there's that tension there, and and we're very cognizant of it. We, we want to you know, protect our sources uh, so we can continue to do this type of, of journalism. But um, 
you know, we we would just not want to see any of our sources right. be prosecuted. I think that's kind of like the unanswered question right now with anonymous sources is that mm-hmm. we don't really, we kind of knew what the game was under the Obama mm-hmm. administration. They were obviously very anti-leakers. They prosecuted whatever the talking point is, more leakers than any previous administration combined. Mm-hmm. That's still an unknown, I think, in the Trump White House. And that was the... I mean, it was, it was funny hearing from, from editors and even readers, like, the assumption that people are going to be so much more willing to share classified and secret information under Trump. And I don't – I think a lot of people are kind of worried – like, nobody knows how aggressively they're going to prosecute leakers because there was all this talk, obviously, that, you know, Trump was railing against leaks, whatever, when all this stuff came out that felled Flynn. Um, but – Nobody except Congress really picked that up. So I think there is this question right now about how aggressively, like, are they going to pick up the torch of the Obama administration and continue it? Are they just going to be a lot of bluster? So I think the posture is obviously to be very, very cautious. Um, But I think it's a a really scary unknown at the moment. Well, and especially when you look at the, the House Intelligence Committee, the Republicans weren't asking questions about Russia. They were asking questions about leakers. And... Uh, it's all politics at that point, but if it becomes real and they're actually hunting down these leakers, even if it, it may look right now like they're just trying to divert attention from the Trump-Russia connection, if there is one, we're assuming there is at some point, but at some point they may actually take it seriously and it may be actually finding a leaker and prosecuting a leaker would be the ultimate way to divert attention away from some kind of shenanigans going on. Well, subpoena, subpoenaing reporters yeah. to appear in front of that investigation. They haven't ruled that out. Well, remember, though, legally, it's quite challenging because this country has been reticent to come up with laws to prosecute um, journalists. I mean, we're, we're, we're citing a 1914 Espionage Act most frequently for that prosecution. And so if that's the path that the Congress chooses to go down, Presumably, they'd have to write their own legislation to update it and be prepared for that. Well, it so happened so often in this town is things that were great ideas when you weren't in control are suddenly not so great when you right. are in control and vice versa. And so um, we, we hear this talk, but and maybe I'm just saying this as someone, this is my hometown, so I've seen some iteration of this in the past. The, the legal standing is not really there, and, and, we're, and we're already seeing that when when we go down this path under one set of assumptions that suddenly it changes under another because the reality is at some point many people in this town have something they think needs to be said and needs to be protected under anonymity so that's but even if they can't prosecute a journalist and you know send them to prison would the threat of having to go through legal proceedings and having your your kind of the the you know the James Rosen type thing you know where uh, he had to deal with just months and months and months under the cloud of a potential prosecution. Is that enough, perhaps, to to dissuade journalists? I don't think you know? anyone at this no. table would be scared of that. No. I think the concern is that it'll dissuade sources. Right. right. And I, well, there's two, yeah. there's two things on this that I just want to like add to add in really quickly. I mean, it should be noted that there was a proliferation of anonymous sourcing that went on under the Obama administration. So at the same time as the Obama administration was going after leakers, there was also just journalists who weren't really being tough about sourcing and there was so much anonymous sourcing I don't know if that's perhaps because there was more of an ideological alignment but I do feel like the Obama administration really abused anonymous sourcing uh, in a way you know they they had sort of uh, prided themselves on being such a transparent organization but the most mundane 
things, I mean, perhaps this is a more personal like anecdote, but the most mundane things, they insisted on anonymous sourcing. Well, they so like that, trademarks the off the record, so no comment. Exactly, <laughs> off the record, no comment yeah. is the most amazing, <laughs> the most amazing thing. Um, so I, I think that should be noted, and like Nancy was saying, so when all of a sudden control switches, and now we're in a very different climate, I think the abuse of anonymous sourcing combined with going after leakers in the Obama administration has created, has contributed to a lot of the challenges now for journalists and sources alike, because there are much more legitimate reasons in some cases to use anonymous sourcing now, uh, but certain expectations were created on the part of the public and the administration about why you need anonymous sourcing, why it should be used. And the other thing I, I want to say just really quickly, I've had a similar experience with sources in certain areas of government that are related to national security but perhaps aren't within the intelligence community, DHS or state or, or the Pentagon or even on the Hill sometimes, um, although they're not in the center of the ballgame all the time. Um, they want to, there's people reaching out and, and that is a nice experience as a journalist to have people reaching out, but the climate of paranoia that's been created and that's not necessarily with the threat of leaks against journalists, but people talking about carrying papers down the hallway saying hey look at this and then they take it back because they also want to be trusted by the administration to do their jobs otherwise they will be cut out of the loop uh, and I think we have seen that with some for example some of the initial executive orders that came down agencies uh, didn't even contribute to those and we've seen the after effect so there's also a tension with the sources who want to share information think needs, things need to be said but also want the administration to trust them so they can continue to be involved in the work that they want to do can, every day. Can I just say, I actually think the biggest immediate challenge is transparency rather than anonymous sources. Right. And I'll say that particularly on the war front, because we are now engaged in a war where there is no independent witnesses. The U.S. deployed conventional forces into Syria earlier this month and didn't announce it. Right. The, 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 this week we are looking at a strike that might have killed hundreds of civilians, but not for witnesses on the ground. We might not know about it. There's talk about changing the, I won't use the acronym, the force management level, which was a requirement for the U.S. to report how many troops um, were deployed, talking about eliminating that. And the military has now announced that when they deploy going forward, they're not going to give specific numbers, but sort of vague unit sizes. And because there's so few people who know the details in this administration, it's still new, a lot of positions haven't been filled, and the fact that this is a war that we can't see. I don't worry about anonymous sources so much as just the ability to get facts on, on the warfront, which of, of course is the area that I'm, I'm most concerned about. What about the American public? Was that, you, you mentioned the story where perhaps maybe even 100 civilians, if that if more, were killed in an American strike, and that came out uh, in the, the news. And, are we jaded as a population now? Because it, 10 years ago, that would have been like, oh my God. Now it's like, oh, that kind of sucks. And you know, as a human being, you stop yourself and go, man, I can't believe I just reacted that way. But after 15 years of the war on terror and the you know, drone strikes killing people around the world, and terrorist attacks were like, that's a bummer. Uh, but we, you know, we're expecting them every day. And then you know, where we used to very, be very concerned about collateral damage, I think it was today or yesterday where Secretary of Defense Mattis said, you know, we're the best at the world at avoiding that, but kind of give the, eh. We'll have more of these extraordinary women in a second, but now I want to tell you about ZipRecruiter. As I told you before, ZipRecruiter is a company that was founded by a group of guys who used to work in the tech industry and with startups, but realized that the absolute worst thing about running an organization was the process of hiring people. 
As I've told you many times before, we are getting within about a year and change from opening the new Spy Museum. And so we're looking to hire new people to work on exhibit development, research, and more. And we'll eventually need to hire a lot more people as we get closer to the opening. And when we need to hire a new person, and we want to get the very best people, and of course, who doesn't? But the process seems never-ending and can take a huge amount of time. We don't have that kind of time as we try to run our current operation while planning the content for the new museum. The people at ZipRecruiter have the solution. So are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? Posting your job in just one place isn't enough to find these quality candidates. If you want to find the perfect hire, you need to post your job in all the top job sites, and now you can. With ZipRecruiter.com, you can post your job to 200 plus job sites, including social media networks like Facebook and Twitter, all with a single click. Find candidates in any city or industry nationwide. Just post once and watch your qualified candidates roll into ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface. There's no juggling emails or calls to your office. You can quickly screen candidates, rate them, and hire the right person fast. So find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by Fortune 100 companies and thousands of small and medium-sized businesses. Right now, listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com first. That's ZipRecruiter.com first. One more time to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com first. Are we now, and this is kind of, I'm asking you to maybe do, to answer a question you can't answer, but do you see the public being a little bit more numb to these kinds of things that should be huge stories? And maybe, maybe you can answer this by looking at where these stories appear on your, in your particular, you know, whether it's The Intercept or The Washington Post or a block of NPR, if it's, I would say, the long-winded question is in, in 2004, it may have been above the fold front page that 100 citizens or civilians were killed, or it would have been the A block of an NPR story. Now it's buried somewhere. Is, is that something that uh, you've seen changes? Well, I'll just say this. that started to come out publicly Thursday and Friday of last week. That was the same week that Comey testified, right. that Neil Gorsuch was, had a Supreme Court hearings, that the health care bill um, was defeated. I think we, don't, we underestimate the sort of tsunami of news that we're throwing at um, people right now. And again, it's a war that people can't see. And, and, and we're using a lot of the same terms and names of cities that we were before. So it's hard to penetrate when there's, we're in this sort of really new period of things we've never seen before to talk about a war that I think for a lot of Americans has been fought repeatedly with troops that they don't know. This is not a war that, this is not America's war. This is a war of your um, volunteer, all volunteer military. So I think it's that combination. I think when um, the Pentagon came out though and confirmed, right, that they had conducted the strike, that, was, that resulted in front page news the next day. Right, but then the question becomes how long because one of the things we're seeing the military do is say, well, we have to do an investigation that could be weeks True. from now. And it's one of three civilian casualty investigations. And so you're right. I mean, that jumped it on the front page. But I think it's interesting they announced it on a Saturday um, t uh, and, and didn't even say U.S. They said coalition because mm -hmm. Belgium and France and Australia. But you're right. It, 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 it elevated it to the front page. But I worry it'll subside again. Mm -hmm. Just one of the things, really quickly, from what you said. I mean, isn't it amazing that we we think of, uh, I guess, like I said before, the sort of democratization of, of publishing? And I was doing Facebook Live at Guantanamo, which was strange. Um, but that you can sort of get, you can see, you can bring the public in anywhere on their phone, on the metro. You can sort of show them Guantanamo Bay and one of the most secure 
facilities in the world, but even with that, there's this disconnect because we aren't seeing the war in Syria. Obviously, for and there are other reasons it's very dangerous to be on the ground as a journalist, but there's so many of these conflicts that we aren't seeing. Uh, that's the strike in Iraq, the war in Syria. I mean, there are countries in Africa that will no longer give journalist visas that, you know, of the five-country region that's on the brink of famine, and meanwhile, the administration wants to slash foreign aid that they're dependent on. I mean, we, we aren't seeing, the American people aren't seeing these conflicts, which is sort of incredible when you think about it, because the access to information that any individual has now is so wide-reaching. Right, and I mean, I think what you said about noise really hit the nail on the head. There's just so much news every single day, and our president is on Twitter every single day, and the number of journalists that are tasked with dissecting those tweets and, you know, trying to disprove them or prove them, and the the number of headlines spent on the wiretapping claim that Trump had and how we've gone through the saga of... Uh, arguing about how accurate that was or how validated he felt about it. I think those sorts of things, people read those headlines and get more and more confused and they just completely miss major stories. I think part of the challenge right now, at the risk of throwing stones, which I am not trying to do at all, is everybody is super interested in national security and so it means a lot of reporters who aren't national security reporters are covering the topic. And that means that a lot of I mean, we've all been on this beat for a long time. We know that it's a nuanced beat and that it takes a very kind of careful, pragmatic reporting to make sure you get it accurate. Um, And that's hard to do when you're trying to feed a 24-7 news cycle beast. Um, So I think that's been a real challenge um, across the national security beat just in having, you know, complaining sessions with other NATSEC reporters is that um, it's really hard to have to kind of chase this 24-7 news cycle because you have to kind of put aside the more nuanced reporting that I think national security reporters who focus specifically on the beat are very good at and explaining that to the American public. Um, But it's hard to get a public to really care about that when they're just able to watch the news breaks all the on time. overload. Yeah, I mean, I'll share two anecdotes from inside the NPR newsroom. One is we are reorganizing our weekend staffing because it dawned on us belatedly a couple of weeks ago that we're continuing to staff the newsroom the way we always had, which was with about a quarter of the people working Saturday and Sunday as who work Monday to Friday because it used to be that the news was somewhat contained and, you know, people were on call if there were an emergency, but it's it's so relentless and if anything it seems to pick up friday night and saturday morning now um so we're staffing to be fully staffed literally seven days a week assuming that the news is never gonna stop and if you think about what that feels like from the listener's point of view it's you know it's just this non-stop barrage the other anecdote is we have um if i'm not mistaken the second biggest overseas presence of reporters of major news organizations. I think the Times has more people overseas than we do, Um, but it's always been a strong point of NPR, and we spend a lot of money on our foreign correspondents. We have three jobs open right now in good places and are having some issues filling them, and part of it, as I talk to people who would normally be interested in going, say, to Jerusalem, they're like, I can't leave Washington. The story is here. The whole world is riveted by what is happening in Washington. So it is difficult to try to get really important things happening in Mosul or Yemen or 
I don't know, you name it, any city around the world, because it's being drowned out by what's happening within a 10-block radius of where, where yeah, we sit right now. And it's basically like, well, well wait, let's wait till Washington huh. slows down. I think yeah. I've been hearing yeah. that for like a year. <laughs> or, how does, just, or like, where is Trump within the first yeah. three lines? So I just sort of made mm-hmm. this decision like on a personal level, but I am very conflicted about it because I do think it's an amazing time to be in Washington and it's our journalism is more important than ever, in particular on the national security beat. I mean, we need to sort of keep people accountable and try and constantly be hitting our heads against the wall of trying to get more transparency. Uh, But on the other hand, I do think there are a lot of stories we're missing missing about the impact on the ground level around the world, not just the officials in Washington, the titles that you talk to, but the people who are being impacted by these policies. Um, So I think that in many ways that's more important than ever, but is challenging from both a business and editorial uh, perspective. to, pur- to pursue those stories. I mean, that, like you said, that investment that NPR is making is huge. And if right now everyone is so obsessed with the story about Trump's tweet, I do think there are people who are asking themselves the question, okay, what's the payoff? All of you came in, as you talked about during the, the, your introduction of yourself, uh, during the war on terror. Uh, are you excited that you have an old-fashioned spy case to deal with now, or the, the premise <laughs> of being able to look at something that's a little bit more great power struggle, espionage type case. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's yeah. so much fun. Spy stories are so much fun. So you can only go so far covering, you know, ISIS did this, mm-hmm. and ISIS did that, and Al-Qaeda in Yemen. Now you've got Russians and spying and stealing elections, potentially. It's gotta be fun. It's gotta be fun to be on this beat right now. It always makes me think of Mitt Romney, uh, just a, a little bit, when Mitt Romney and the Obama made fun of him in 2012 during the debate for saying that Russia was the number one geopolitical foe. He just looked like Romney and his dad, James, just looking so pleased with himself these days. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he got it. He got him. It's really interesting. I'm sure we've all had this experience that over the last couple years, I, w- I kept trying to like get information on ISIS and Al-Qaeda and like NATSEC stuff like that and the drumbeat that I would always hear from people is like China and Russia are what we're really worried about China and Russia China and it's funny how that's kind of like come around full circle I was late to the train but <laughs> I interviewed a former CIA Moscow station chief recently who was who was now retired and he was describing the feeling of being recruited to go up to go to Moscow and spy on the Russians in the 80s. And he said, it's it's like getting the call to, from the Yankees to come right. pitch. You're going up against the best of the best. And he said, I, feel, I felt so sorry for all the young guys who only got to go up against Al-Qaeda and ISIS because, <laughs> because as much damage as they have wrought, you're not, you're not pitching against the best in the world. I mean, you're, you're not going up against the, the main adversary, the worthy adversary, as the Russians have always described the U.S. And he said, now they're going to get to go do it. Isn't that great? They're going to go and, and play ball with, with the best in the world. And as a reporter, you feel that a little bit. Um, the Russians are, have been spectacularly successful at what they set out to do uh, right. in terms of in terms of cyber intrusions uh, in the U.S. election. I, you know, we can, that's a whole nother podcast in terms of oh, yeah. getting into the details of that, but um, but it's a really challenging and really fascinating Is story. Is there an editorial reshaping of focus in the newsrooms? Do you see people starting to kind of move people off the big stories of the counterterrorism stuff onto the Russia-China Oh, I think that happened, yeah. Um, yeah it's like six ago. months ago. Yeah. Yeah. But it's yeah. interesting, but um, I, I was talking to my editor about this recently, yeah. of um, 
as a like when I kind of a I'm still green as a green national security reporter is this kind of this question of like what area do you really want to focus on um, and we kind of got to the point where I you know you I think you have to choose I was talking about going to language school I was talking about where I want to read blah 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 um, and it was kind of this choice of like do I want to pivot more and focus more on Middle East issues do I want to focus more on Russia do I want to focus more on China and it's interesting because there's like a real vacuum of like Western media outlets I mean a, a lot of people see it here have a lot of resources devoted to it but when you talk about like coverage of national security threat regions there is kind of a vacuum around Russia and Eastern Europe or there has been and now there's this new like interest um, and it's just a really fascinating time to jump into it I've, I've been able to learn so well, much. Well, particularly because Trump was elected. If, if, if Clinton had been elected, then this... I think it would be the same be something, thing. Then Peter Baker would still be in Jerusalem. He's a New York Times senior mm. White House correspondent. Now he, they got to call him, call him back to the White House because of Trump. And I think once we started to see some of these you know, stories about uh, the meetings that you know, Flynn, Mike Flynn had with the Russian ambassador and then subsequent stories about Jeff Sessions, the attorney general, and his meetings things started to just really pick up. And then you have a president who's tweeting out at 7.30 in the morning on a Saturday that President Obama had ordered him his phones be wiretapped out of Trump Tower. I mean, so, you know, the pace has just been relentless. It's, but wait, yeah. Do you ever get a day off, Ellen? <laughs> <laughs> I've had one day off like, in the last couple of weeks. Ellen's no, the one who's kind of ruined all of our Friday nights, right? No. It's like the Washington Post no. news. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you know, Still I've been reading Ellen for years and years, and it's so fascinating to see like your understanding of technology and the sort of wiretap and that, that field that I just don't understand. And then yeah. how it sort of evolved into cover. That's my favorite part of reading, reading your work. Cause Thank you. Yeah. I remember reading it like as a um, technology. And then that, that, that evolution of technology plus national security threat and geopolitical is just fascinating. To when me. I first started covering cyber, oh, seven years ago, it was a real sort of niche area that I was only put on because my editor at the time had a real thing for cyber warfare, and he really wanted someone at the Post to look into what you know, the then Bush administration was doing on cyber warfare and then Obama, and I had absolutely no, you know, knowledge of or inclination towards cyber. I can barely, you know, like get my apps to work on my phone. And anyway, um, I started covering it and found that it became, I, I got interested in it after Stuxnet and, and all of these things. And then Snowden happened and then sort of the big Russian hack of the DNC. And as my now editor says, you know, the spotlight swung back toward you. And so all of that, those years of yeah. dwelling in the vineyards covering cyber have kind of now paid off. Yeah. And it pays off as a reader. Yeah, <laughs> yeah really. But that's yeah. also really interesting. Like you said, you were sort of toiling in the vineyards yeah, of cyber, and when no one seemed really. to pay as much attention to it, now the spotlight has sort of swung to you. But I think that's a really fascinating question, is that where do you invest your time as a journalist or as a publication when it comes to national security? I mean, I think all the people who, who really cut their teeth on covering uh, al-Qaeda or sort of these non-state actors in the Middle East and... The, actually the very impressive amount of damage they have been able to do uh, with very small groups of people or mm -hmm. non-traditional warfare and if the spotlight sort of swings back to the sort of Cold War thinking of Russia and China I, there's going to be a time it, it's always swinging I yeah. guess is where I'm going yeah. and, and so where you invest those resources uh, I think is a fascinating 
Yeah, it's a, it's a long question. game. It's a long game. It you have and to I play think, like, long game. Props yeah. to your editor for the foresight of that. Because, I mean, that's how you guys have been able to do such amazing work, right? Is that you build that foundation. Right. And I think that's the challenge right now with, like, so much being shoved at us is that there's a real um, fear of, of missing out if you take the time to, like, okay, well, why don't we... Why don't we focus on this because it's going to be a big story in six months, you know, so we don't have to parachute into this. Um, because any good, nuanced, accurate national security story, you don't get from parachuting into a beat. You get from having covered it for, for years. Um, and I, I think that that's like the place we're in now is that our, our news organization is going to be willing to kind of invest in something that's going to be a big story five, ten years from now. and. I mean, the payoff is clear. I mean, you guys, Post has been leading on, on such in, in good, accurate impact reporting. Um, but it took years of investment. And, it, I mean, that's the piece that I think news organizations really need to value right now. And a lot of it comes from having, you know, teams of reporters. Because what we're doing at the Post comes about because of having – you know, Greg Miller, who's covered the CIA and Intel for years, and Adam Entis, who came from the Wall Street Journal, but just brought a wealth of, of sources with him and insights. And then folks on the Hill and the White House. I mean, Philip, you know, Rucker and Bob Costa <laughs> are sort of wired into the, the Trump uh, team. So we feel like we're in a pretty good place now, but and we have been getting a lot of uh, good, you know, vibes from readers, but also a lot of angry, you know, nasty emails and trolling comments. Um, I think, and I've never seen that level before either. Well, I think it speaks to this expectation that readers have that we be advocates in their cause. That's been my experience. Mm -hmm. That's been one of the biggest changes that when I went to Iraq, you could report on what you were seeing and, and do it in such a way that really tried to advance their understanding of the war. And now you feel the pressure because people expect you to be advocates in their cause. That that they're all, this sort mm -hmm. of Facebook, Twitter effect that everything's filtered down to what they've already decided is the way things are and it's interesting because with national security reporting particularly military reporting you can get really nasty comments yeah. and you're always struck by it because you just want to scream I'm not your advocate that's not my job right. and it's right. I'm not and I don't want to be predictable in terms of where I'm going with the story I just want to bring the reader along and wherever the story takes me in some ways that's what I love about national security reporting because uh, I'm going to regret this later also, but it, I think there's less bullshit involved. I think there's less BS involved. It, it can be military reporting or national security reporting can be more straightforward. Sometimes that because that's because people think they have this sort of sense of duty that sort of rises above the politics. Certainly there's politics in national security reporting, but I think um, I feel lucky in be covering national security and that I'm protected from some of that sort of hill mm -hmm. spinning BS. I mean, there's cer certainly still that, but you, I think I at least feel the freedom to be a little more straightforward and tell it like it is. And and I think the military has a, and the intelligence community too has a very different thinking. Um, you know, sort of just the facts, ma'am. I mean, there's certainly there's certainly spin, but um, so when people sort of have that response, when readers have that response about sort of being mad, you're not on their side of things. I think there sort of is this broad recognition that national security in particular is so important, and maybe that's why the the pushback is so strong, um, but from as as a reporter, I feel like there's a little bit less of the, the BS. Well, it used to be that the intelligence committees were the nonpartisan, nonpolitical, right. with armed services, a little bit of foreign relations. That's beginning to shift a little bit. 
yeah. where politics well, is finding its bit. way into places <laughs> that it normally didn't. Yeah, just a bit. I'm trying to be as apolitical as I possibly can. Uh, but I, I mean, you, you're right. I, I, I think that we try, I mean, as a museum, we try to be as apolitical as we possibly can, you know, just kind of, we piss a lot of people off. I piss people off all the time. I did a, two weeks ago, we did a climate change podcast and there are a lot of people on the right that didn't like that all that much. And then I get people on the left saying, how do you let that person talk? Because I had Mike Hayden on. And, and you try to say, well, it's, it's news. You know, for you guys, it's news. It's information. It's what the public needs to know. And for us, it's history or it's, it's current events. And, you know, you try not to impose any of your own personal opinion as much as you possibly can, but you're never going to make everybody happy. We'd like to thank ZipRecruiter and Blue Apron for their sponsorship of SpyCast. Remember, you can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com first. And you can check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to BlueApron.com SpyCast. So I, I can listen to you guys talk all day. I'm so happy that I didn't actually have to do a whole lot on this, which is wonderful for me. So I want to thank Ali Watkins, Jenna McLaughlin, Ellen Nakashima, Molly O'Toole, Mary Louise Kelly, and Nancy Youssef for joining us here on SpyCast today. This is truly a pleasure. Um, learned a lot. I, I, I rarely say that. I like the people, listeners know that I, I am a little bit full of myself in many ways. I'll be the first to admit that. But I did sit back and learn a ton today, so I really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks, Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for joining us on SpyCast. Every Tuesday, we'll give you the most interesting conversations with some of the most intriguing people in the world of intelligence. If you'd like to send us a comment or suggestion, you can email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Or tweet us at intlspycast. That's I-N-T-L-S-P-Y-C-A-S-T. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit institution. To help support future educational programming, please visit spymuseum.org and click on our Donate Now link at the top of the page. Thank you, and we'll see you next week. Hey all, Rick here. At N2K CyberWire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. It only takes a few minutes and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. Head on over to cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to share your feedback now.